Hello, everyone. Today is October 5th, 2015. This is the Monday Morning Analyst. Just one event to get to today, UFC 192, Daniel Cormier versus Alexander Gustafson, uh, which was a okay event, great main event. And we'll talk about a few of the fights on that card. Not all of them because we don't have time. The podcast works three ways, opening statements over general overview. We'll break down some of the fights, and then we'll have a brief and quick look ahead. Uh, thank you for joining me. You can follow me on Twitter at Thomas. You may, um, uh, what else can you do? You can email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. There's a thousand things you can do, but Twitter's probably the best one to get a hold of. Uh, okay, so let's go ahead and talk about UFC 192 if we can. Like I said before, a decent card. I'll rate it in just a second. Uh, let me pull up the card here, and we'll talk about some of the facts. Um, the attendance in Houston, Texas, it was at the Toyota Center was 14,622 for a gate of 1.859 million. So 1.86 million for the gate there. Uh, some notably empty seats during the broadcast and for the gate to be less than two while having an attendance of almost 15, you know, 14 and a half plus tells you that there was a lot of papering going on, which is not the end of the world. Not every event can be a huge success, but um, this isn't a failure, of course. It's just not a not a big success. Okay, so there were five, nine, 12 bouts on the card. One, of course, was taken off last minute, Johnny Hendricks versus Tyron Woodley. Unfortunately, we can't get to that. Uh, three portions to the card, main card, preliminary card on Fox Sports 1, and then preliminary card on Fight Pass. So let's start with the top of the card, if we can. Daniel Cormier uh, taking on Alexander Gustafson. This was some interesting stuff that went on in this fight. Now, there's in some ways, the fight. Well, actually, you know what? I forgot part one. Let me do part one here before I get into the. Um, I almost forgot the own rules of my own podcast. Um, before we get into breaking down these fights, quick overview, quick thing I want to note. Speaking of the third portion of that card, the prelim card that was on Fight Pass, the big to do was about Sage Northcutt, which of course there should be. Uh, kid looks like a million bucks. Obviously, insanely athletic. Was appropriately matched with somebody who he could beat, you know, relatively easily. Not just because you want him to win, but because you want him to get experience competing in the UFC and wearing the Reebok gear and doing the interviews and just dealing with fight week. You know, people don't realize who don't cover the sport or don't go to shows very often. It's one thing to train for a fight; it's another thing to train and get ready and then do a fight week. All that stuff you have to do, and all the appearances you have to make, and all the phone calls you have to answer becomes draining while you're doing a weight cut and everything else. So it, it can be problematic. So, you know, listen, getting him his feet wet, I think, is a thing to say. But I saw some articles being like, well, you know, he delivered on all the hype and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking to myself, like, no, he didn't. There's no, like, not because he, he failed in some way. That's not true. Just because there's no way you could know that. Like, did he look good against Francisco Trevino? Yes, obviously he did. He looked tremendous against Francisco Trevino. But he was supposed to. Right, anything, anything short of looking tremendous would have been an epic disappointment. And in some ways, I think he exceeded some expectations. But let me just sort of make a point here, not so much about Sage Northcutt specifically, who, again, I don't have anything bad to say about him, but what I would say is we don't really know a whole lot about him still. We don't know how well he can take a shot in an MMA context. We don't know how he's going to handle someone who can uh, match his athleticism. We don't know how he's going to handle someone like a wrestler who's going to be on top of him over and over and over again. We don't know how he's going to handle having someone on top of him, slicing him with elbows, and then having to react to that. We, we simply don't know any of this. We don't know how he's going to deal with someone taking his back. We don't know how someone, he's going to deal with someone jumping guillotine. We don't know how someone's going to, he's, are we going to deal with someone who, who manages distance with a jab. 
we, we just don't know. None of these things have been answered. In MMA, it's one of these sports where until you've really seen someone get enough <clears throat> appearances and reps against the kind of opposition whose skills you can reasonably trust, that you don't know what the answer to those things are. You can make some guesses. Um, you can make some inferences, of course. But what you can say about Sage Northcutt is he did everything he was supposed to on Saturday night. But everything he was supposed to do was very, very little in the totality of understanding who he actually is. So did he live up to the hype? I suppose if the hype is, did you beat a guy you were supposed to beat? Did you get your feet wet? Um, did you look athletic? Did you have some good finishing instincts? Did you show some great athleticism? Obviously dropping for the takedown, getting scoring the double uh, as Trevino turtled, going right to the elbows. Sure, sure. You know, but Trevino was able to turtle because your pressure on top wasn't very good. You know, and maybe you didn't want it to be very good because you let him off. Like there's, there's two ways to look at that, but I'm just saying you don't have enough reps to look at him and make an accurate conclusion about his ability as a mixed martial artist. You have that much, you need that much. And you're not supposed to have this much yet because he hasn't had enough opportunities. So get excited for what you've seen, but don't go too far with it. He's still very, very green and still has a long way to go. And eventually someone in the sport is going to put it on him. And when they do, you need to see how they react. Because until then, you simply don't know. And maybe he reacts amazingly. Maybe he comes out and is better than we even thought possible. He's the next coming of fighting Jesus. Maybe maybe that's the case, but we don't know. And until we do, let's slow down the roll with the conclusions. All right, so back to the fight card, UFC 192. Main event, Daniel Cormier defeating Alexander Gustafson via split decision 48-47, 47-48, 49-46. I scored it 48-47, but I, think I can almost understand all of the scores. Less so the Gustafson one, but even then, I think you can make a case that's not not all that crazy. 50-45, uh, I wouldn't take it from anyone. I think Gustafson definitely took a round or two. Um, I scored two rounds for him. I'm not sure which ones. I think the, I think the third and the fourth maybe I scored for him. I have to go back and look. But uh, in any case, so what happened in this fight? There's a lot that happened independent of what I'm going to be able to say about it from the perspective of this podcast, right? So in other words, I'm not going to break down the entire thing. What you saw first was Cormier essentially walking down Gustafson the entire time. And Gustafson intermittently using his jab, intermittently will get to this finding space, especially in the third round, for, or excuse me, maybe the second round. I have to go back and look for the takedown. Um, intermittently finding space for a good body work um, on, his, on his heels the entire time, often running toward them, rotate into center. You're seeing Daniel Cormier with a very high guard, leaving himself open to body shots, using right hands. If he can't land the right, using that to hook the head. Same with the left. Um, uh, not just Cormier walking down, but Cormier throwing the left hand. You saw that a lot just to take away the right of Gustafson. Like it wouldn't even land, but he would throw it first, anticipating a counter, and he would leave it hanging almost a little bit. Like he wouldn't even fully swing just so he could draw the counter and then either a clinch or just to block the shot and keep him backing him up. Um, you saw decent leg kicks from both guys, more so from Cormier. I think the more powerful shots from, from Gustafson, but certainly um, the more active leg work, I would say, came from Daniel Cormier. So there's a lot of that happening over and over and over again. That fifth round was basically just a lot of that back and forth. You saw a lot of Daniel Cormier hanging on the head and firing right uppercuts, uh, and those were very, very damaging. You saw Daniel Cormier leaping with right hands as he got Cormier uh, – Gustafson circling back and out the direction he wanted. Um, 
you saw a lot of that stuff. So, so I'm not going to talk about all of those different components and what may or may not have influenced the judges' decisions. I think we can all sort of agree that Cormier, in general, probably landed more damage and did so much stalking that that may have had an impact. I think those are the two sort of uh, prevailing factors for him. Independent of that, there's a couple things I want to point out to you. In round one, the high crotch lift. Now, this was made possible by the fact that you know, Gustafson got a lot better about evasion, and then you can say he ran, but he didn't run away and then stay out. He ran towards the center to, re- to regroup the fight. Um, he got better about that as the fight wore on, but that first exchange, Cormier backs him up, drives into him, and clasps his hands underneath one leg. Uh, he was never able to subsequently do that ever again past that point, which tells you, one, about the hand-fighting skills, and two, about the, the, the what I like to call the standing scrambling of Gustafson, which is very, very good. But he gets that high crotch lift, and, and he didn't actually get a C-grip. He got a, not even a blade of the hand grip, he got like a wrist grip, uh, and then used it, and then just and drove him up, and then dumped him all the way around. And what's notable about that, and the thing you should sort of really pay attention to if you get a chance to go back and watch, when he gets on top of him, he has to switch sides to properly control him. There's a drill in jiu-jitsu, and probably in wrestling too, I'm, I'm sure. I'm not, I'm not, I learned it from jiu-jitsu, so I don't know to what extent they borrow it, but I'm sure the, the, you know, they must have something like it. You actually get a medicine ball, and you put it on the ground, and you put your chest in the medicine ball where it hurts your chest the most. You put your feet behind you and your hands behind your back like you're being arrested by the cops, and then you rotate in circles, both directions, you then roll to your ribs. And the key is find where it hurts the most on the medicine ball against your chest. That's the place where you're giving the most pressure. Sounds logical when I explain it, right? You see Cormier get the takedown, realizing the way the underhooking was uh, connected, he had to switch sides to keep Gustafson flat on his back. Um, and he does, but he does it with by keeping constant pressure rotating in a circle. That was the nice little twist he added to that. Uh, let's see. So there was one point where DC passed him because, you know, Augustuson tries to get up and can't. DC gets back on him. DC actually passes just by getting one leg to the side of the ground and then throwing his leg in the air and then bringing it to the side. But the problem is when he did that, what happens? If I'm on one knee and you're in half guard, you're not going to get up because you're trying to keep me locked with your half guard. Um, but what happens if I'm on that, my, let's say in this case, it was DC's right knee. And then I lift my left leg way in the air, like a dog trying to pee on a fire hydrant. And then I bring it to the outside. I've passed your guard and I put my knee on the ground. Well, I've got both knees on the ground. Well, if I've got both knees on the ground, you have a ton of space to work with. So I've passed your guard, but I've not controlled you in any way. So what does Gustafson do? Takes one hand, digs an underhook, bridges, throws Cormier, Past him, but not much. We're talking a foot, maybe a foot and a half at most. I mean, even probably not even that much. Just enough where you can then see his belly button, and he uses that to bridge, throw with the underhook, and then corkscrew back to his base. So, so it was, it was a nice little adjustment. Like, yes, Gustafson got his guard pass, but when Cormier came down, he came down both knees on the ground. There's just too much. If someone good is going to see that space, and they're going to get out of there fast. Um, so that was nice. In round two, Gustafson got a takedown. How do you get the takedown? So Cormier went for a takedown off of knee. He gets kneed, reaches for a single, and then Gustafson limp legs out. Or no, sorry, um, I believe that's how it went. 
Yeah, and limp, limp legs out, and then they reset. And then Gustav, excuse me, the Cormier walks into him. Cormier, I don't think at any point was expecting to get taken down. So as soon as he steps in, boom, he gets it. Same takedown he took John Jones on the first time too. And you notice what 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 um, basically just a straight double. Did you notice how he finished it in a circle? Always. Why? Because if you run me straight back, yes, you can take me down. We'll get to that in just a minute. Yes, you can take me down. But if you rotate someone on a, on a, on an axis, remember the Barzagar finish we talked about. You hit the double, and then you drive them at an angle because you can block one side and go. Running that way in a rotational circle, I can run that way forever. I can then block your side and then drive you over. So always we're trying to finish at an angle, at a circle. Did a really good job of that. Of course, DC popped right back up. Uh, you'll see something that I want to point to later. This is a point where Cormier is having a lot of success from the clinch driving the right hands okay as he's driving the right hands he's got a left hand on the on the wrist on the excuse me on the neck right hand driving the uppercut there's a point there where gustison tries to match him he keeps one hand on cormier's neck and then one hand trying to get wrist control to varying degrees of success just keep that in the bank there in the memory bank for just a second all right and then there was one moment there where gus gets a, great, a much better takedown he ducks a right hand from from cormier cormier leaps with the right hand he ducks to the outside clasps his hands, and then uses his own left leg around the, the, the lunging right hand and right leg of Cormier to wrap him up and then take him down and then keep him down for actually a bit of a second there. Um, Cormier had to, like, bridge on both hands to stand up, which was risky getting choked, but it's a little bit harder to take your back when someone's that big and that fast. Round three. So this is a round where I'm not going to mention it all throughout because Gus had some nice things he did individually. But this is a round where Gustafson was getting pounded on inside that clinch and from right hands at distance from Daniel Cormier. Um, let's see. what There's a couple things he did that I really liked. Even though he was getting tagged, he had a good jab going. I thought Gustafson did. Uh, he timed an uppercut as Cormier reached with his left. So Cormier was, Cormier was actually pretty good about throwing some combinations, one side then the other. So I think he threw like a kick that a one-two. Gustafson stepped out and then threw an uppercut and cracked him with it. That was really nice. Um, so how did the knee land? Because that was really the most important one. What you see is Cormier. Okay, so Gustafson is reaching out with his left hand, using his forearm on the clavicle of Cormier. He's got a behind the neck, the hand behind the neck. So he's got the one side. This side, he's got like bicep control on. He doesn't quite have you know two-handed plumb, fingers interlaced. Nothing like that. He's just got one hand here, kind of one hand there. But that's pretty good control, man. That's not that's not bad. So what do you see? What do you see uh, Cormier do? Cormier is really good at this. People will try to get locked up on him, and he'll actually turn to the side and he'll try and get underneath your arm. So if your arm is extending here straight into me, you got your forearm here, you got your wrist behind my neck. A lot of guys will take their arm underneath and they'll bump it over, right? And they'll and you turn this way and you bump it. You can actually back up. Um, there's lots of ways you can duck underneath, but that's a little bit dangerous because you can get hit, but you get the idea. You, you essentially loosen the grip by going with it, right? Cause the grip is pushing this way. If I take that away, the grip goes away, right? That's what you're doing. And then you're bumping up with your forearm underneath it, underneath their arm. And you can bump up behind their elbow. You don't want to bump up in front of their elbow cause that doesn't work. So you take like kind of like the outside of your bicep, right? Between your bicep and your tricep here. And under their arm, you as you as you angle out, you can't. You have to turn your body a little bit, and you got to angle out. And you bump it past, and then you can do whatever you want to do. So Cormier was trying to do that. 
got a little lazy with it or maybe got tired or maybe got overpowered because it doesn't work. Gustafson repowers it and then drives his, his shoulder blades flat to the fence for just a split second, which was all he needed. Boom, there came the right. Remember, he's blocked this side, bicep control on this side. Bro, you're not moving. They're going to get you. Knee up the, to the gut, knee up to the whatever. And so he ate it on that one. But obviously, DC scrambled back and was able to uh, recover from that point. Uh, quickly, round five. Um, this is the only thing I wanted to mention. Remember before I told you, Cormier, left hand on the neck, bang, using the right to just drive it up to the, you know, just, just crushing him with the dirty boxing. By the fifth round, what did you see Gustafson doing? Two hands on the right. So before he was like, you know what? You put a hand on my neck, I'm going to put a hand on your neck. That's a common instinct. I'm going to pull you down. I'm going to snap you down. I'm going to pull. I'm going to turn you. And he was realizing this is not going very well for me. Forget it. Let's just let's just get two hands on the right. Because Cormier doesn't want to let go of the left either. Because once he lets go of the left, he can step out. He can pull you. You kind of want to keep that down. So it stalemated the position, but at least Gustafson wasn't getting lit up. Um, decent, decent attempt by him. Give me just one second here. All right. So let's move on to the co-main event. Ryan Bader taking on Rashad Evans, defeating him by unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. Um, you, in MMA, I have found that if you're a journalist and you make predictions, you only get any kind of feedback if you get things badly. When you get them right, you never get any feedback. So despite the fact that I called this one, despite him, he was a, across the board at every sports betting, um, every odds maker had Bader as an underdog. I called Bader. Not because of some genius stroke, just because I couldn't believe that a guy after two years would get that kind of nod. But okay, um, and I think I got this one wrong, and then the Jordan fight wrong, and that was it. I got all the rest of them right. So there you go. All right, that shovel punch. How about that thing from Ryan Bader, huh? So how did he set it up? A bunch of different ways, but it was pretty common. He would go leg kick, or he would go high kick, and we watch him throw the high kick. He almost doesn't even aim for the head. He almost aims for the hand blocking it. Right, I can't quite prove that, but it felt like that when you watch it. Like it wasn't very close to Rashad's head. Sometimes it was kind of out here, just making sure he kept you honest. And then, because what happens when they block? They'll go like this, right? They'll stick the hand out to make sure you can't get in distance, or that they're in distance for their own kind of kick for a counter strike, and that they're blocking. So if the kick comes, bang! This hand's usually out. They're usually not here. They're usually out here. That's how you have to do it. And so what he would do? He would get them to go here, and then he would feign it again. They would go like this, and he would that would just open the lane underneath to get stuck. Uh, very, very clever by Ryan Bader. I like that a lot. Um, so there was one point where he was getting cornered, right? Because this fight was interesting to me. Like when Ryan Bader was going forward, he was winning easily. When he was backing up, he was winning less, and sometimes not at all. But mostly, it was stalemated. But it, it was, it was. You know, I know we don't like to talk about fights like, well, <coughs> if so and so is walking forward, they're winning. If so and so is walking backward, they're losing. And that wasn't totally the case here, but it was often the case here. Same with the uh, or the main event as well. Um, but there was something that was really interesting to me. One was he would get cornered on, he would get cornered by Rashad. He would fake the right. Rashad would come up. Then what he would he do? Rashad would bring the hands back down, and before he could do anything else, Bader would jab and then circle out. So get him to react, get him to settle, 
pop him again while he's least expecting it, and then circle out again. So, like, nice evasive maneuvering by Ryan Bader. In that particular case, he was circling to his left. He was getting trapped one way, fake the right, comes up, pops him with a jab, and then circles. I really sort of enjoyed how Bader did that. One thing that was notable that Bader did, though, that kind of surprised me, maybe Rashad didn't want to give up his own legs because he thought Bader would take him down. But Bader, when he jabbed, was really, really heavy on the front leg. He would jab, and the back leg would come off the ground. You know, really heavy on that front leg, begging to get leg kicked. Again, now Bader's got great takedowns, so maybe that's what he was thinking. But um, one thing to note about Bader's jab there, the jab was consistent and accurate, which was good, but it was really heavy on the front leg. In the second round, it was a great knee tap that Bader scored, not even off of a strike. Here's what's so notable about it. Rashad saw it coming the whole time and caught him, caught him with it. But Bader's strength overpowered Rashad. That was clear to me. Rashad caught the takedown in time, got his underhooks where they needed to be. He just couldn't strength for strength match him. Bader's a strong guy. Um, in the second round, Evans did a much better job of walking Bader down, even landed two rights as Bader was sliding across the fence. So you notice there was a moment there where not just was Bader moving backwards, but he was like really narrow against the fence. I mentioned before he eventually gets out of that, but there was a point that we should note that Rashad was really good about cornering him. It didn't do a whole lot with it. It kind of just felt like watching Evans that you just didn't get a full array of his offense. You know, maybe that's in part because Bader did a good good job of shutting it down, but, you know, it's hard to also argue that um, the two years, you know, didn't contribute. In the third round, Evans landed a leg kick, but Bader used it to whip a left hook around the corner. Remember that left eye was already badly shot up. Um, you know, Bader didn't show a ton of head movement and it was interesting that, that like Evans couldn't connect, but one thing that both worked for his advantage and his disadvantage was Bader threw a lot of one shots, right? Throws a jab and then circles, throws a shovel punch and circles, throws the head kick and circles. He doesn't throw a lot of combinations. He did a couple of times, but, um, mostly it was single shotting. He would single shot you one way to get a reaction. And then he would single shot you to take advantage of the reaction he established. But he wasn't going one, two, uppercut, right? It's not exactly what he was doing. Um, there was a good body kick. He did land off a one, two in that. So he would go one, two, reached out, put a hand on the shoulder of Evan so he couldn't close the distance so he could measure and bang, fired up a kick. That was nice. Uh, and then Bader ran down a double. Did you guys see that? Straight back. It was awesome, too, because he finished it perfectly for that kind of takedown. If you're going to run someone straight back, you got to do it one way. You put the forehead in the chest, you grab behind the legs, and you just drive until you can pull them up and then, then just run them over. He does that. To his credit, Evan sees it, butterfly hooks him, sweeps him to one side, and blocks the elbow on the ground and is able to stand. So good job there um, by Rashad Evans. But it was very, very strong performance by Bader. When people talk about like, Bader striking being improved, it's fluid. His footwork was consistent, but he can still be cornered. He single shots a lot, and he's really heavy on that front leg with the jab. So there's still a lot for him to work on, um, or you know, someone who's just got lights out take. I mean, and by the way, Bader had lights out takedown defense in this fight as well. But if someone else is fighting him with lights out takedown defense, um, there's a lot they can do. So uh, I'm going to skip the Russell and Magomedov versus Sean Jordan fight, which Russell and Magomedov won via unanimous decision. Joseph Benavidez defeated Ali Bega Utinov, also via unanimous decision. I'm going to skip that. Let's go to Juliana Pena versus Jessica I for a moment if we can. Uh, but this is a fight where, you know, I don't know how y'all feel about it. 
I like Pena's grappling, but this wasn't her strongest showing, and her striking didn't look all that great to me. What looked great to me in this fight was some of Pena's grappling and her hustle, right? She won this fight because of hustle. Jessica I seems to me very, very talented, very talented. She did a lot of cool things in this fight, but she just reacts. She, she reminds me of Martin Campman a little bit. She just reacts to people's offense a little too much rather than imposing. It's not that she doesn't have skills or athleticism or a big punch. She's got all those things. But she just winds up being like, I'm going to negate you. I'm going to negate you. I'm going to negate you. Well, okay, that's good. But then put it on them. Right? Um, so there was one cool moment where in the first round, Payne is trying to get inside. Uh, and Jessica I actually gets double underhooks on her. So Pena pulls guard. I tries to pass with a knee slice that like uh, Shanji Habero is the king at. Now, I've only ever learned it in the gi, but what you saw was she would grab, she was knee slicing. We talked about the knee slice before. She had that part right, and she was grabbing the near side arm of just Juliana Pena. Well, why? Because if I'm trying to turn and you're going to pull my arm out, what happens to my back? It goes flat. Right, so you're gonna pin my hips with the knee slice, and you're gonna pull my arm like a bow and arrow, and your back winds up going um, straight as a consequence. Now she couldn't actually finish the pass, or I know I think she passed, and then but she she didn't have any control over it. So what wound up happening was um, Juliana Pena got to her base, turtled, and then they went from there. But interesting to note there. In the gi, when you do it, you take one hand deep inside the collar and you grab it. Then you take the other hand on the outside of the gi and you pull, and then you knee slice because you can use your elbow to keep them down. You can use it to come back and around. You can hold on to the things, the levers and the and the the handles that you need to still keep them flat. No gi when you're just holding someone's wrist. I'm not sure what you have with your other hand. It's a little more difficult to do. Um. Let's see, I gets turned on an outside trip, tries to take the back and transition for the ar ar arm bar, but didn't have the ability to turn on her shoulder, so she fell to her hip. So you saw one part where uh, Julia Pena gets a trip, lands on top, but you see Jessica I try to come back and take the back, can't do that. So then she tries to grand B roll across her shoulders. Remember, not across your back, across your shoulders. That changes the angle. So she tries to take the back, can't quite get it, falls to the side, and then she tries to roll across her shoulders to go get it can't does it and then falls to her back but she at least had the attempt there she was kind of close um and then Pena got another trip and uh she, but but uh i had an underhook which sort of prevented a lot of movement on the part of um Pena, although there was an arm bar there the whole time for her to catch uh okay uh hold on round two um let's see i get to guard pass on top by just stepping out but she couldn't keep Pena from turtling. It's the same kind of thing. She just sort of stepped out, but Pena turtles. Uh, I tries to take the back and can't get it. So you see, if I'm Juliana Pena, you see her left hand. She keeps her hips locked down and her hand here so that the hook can never come over, right? So that's that's the good part because uh, she's blocking the space in the hand. So um, what does I do? I correctly says, uh, I'm about to lose this because, you know, Juliana Pena is going to get her hips, their uh, shoulder blades to the mat and turn. So you got to you got to beat him at the turn. So I beats her at the turn and catches the head and arm triangle. So why didn't it work? A couple of reasons. Two things. One, um, sometimes people just have six submission defense there and they're hard to finish. I don't think that's necessarily the case here, but giving someone the benefit of the doubt, you can do that. Number two, um, when Jessica I was coming around the corner, she never she she clasped her legs like uh, underneath the okay. 
So she's on the back of Juliana Pena, right? And she's realizing, oh, I need to go to the top. She never uncrosses her legs and then cross over the waist of Pena before the transition. That was your moment. Uncross them and then recross them above the waist and then slide into mount. She never does that. She keeps them locked around one leg the whole time. So when she slides around, she slides around the one leg. Well, once you're on top, the person on the bottom who's getting choked knows they cannot let that happen. So they're going to lock down on you for dear life. So the chance to get that out was then. And the reason why is because what you saw was she's like, wow, I've got this choke. I want to pass. If you're really good at passing or the person on the bottom sucks or whatever, you can make it happen. But a lot of times, and this is what you saw, she gets the choke. It's pretty good. It's a little high for me. Um, but that doesn't mean it won't work. I mean, there was daylight here, but it was still, it was tight. You know, her face was changing colors. The problem was she was tripoding her rear end up so that she could create room for her right knee to slide out. Well, when you do that, what are you doing? You're lifting pressure off of this. This choke is about pressure flat and twisted. Once you start going up, you're releasing all the pressure on the choke. Uh, or not all the pressure, but enough for the person to be like, I'm good. I can last here. I'm good. I can hand fight. I can squeeze space. You're not just relieving pressure. You might be getting in space for them to get their fingers in there or whatever the case may be. And she, she eventually has to let it go because she can't pass. You know, the, the trick was before you tried to move on top and seal the choke, uncross your legs, cross on top because she had nothing blocking it. Pena had no, had no ability to block that. Um, but that was the chance right there. So, all right. And then if there was this moment where like, she tried this bizarre, I tried this bizarre armless triangle. I don't know why people keep doing this in MMA. It doesn't work. Um, and then the third, the thing that was sort of like I took away from that um, was just, I don't know, man. Like, I was not over, like, in MMA, you got to give Juliana Pena a lot of credit because, you know, she just had I reacting to all her offense. Okay, so I give her tons of credit there. And obviously, she's a very skilled competitor. Um, what I wonder is if Pena is more used to being like a mobile passer because the pressure passing to me was like in MMA. I don't know if you guys know this. If, if, if I'm in your full guard, so you got full guard on me, you can pass while the, uh, if I'm on my knees and you got your guard around me, I can pass. There are passes from your knees. There's a Sao Paulo pass. There's all kinds of passes you can do from there. But generally speaking, if you want to open up someone's guard, you got to stand. Again, not, not a hard and fast rule, but it's just a little bit easier. Why? Because I can stand. I can drive pressure on your knee. I can get out. I can put a wedge between your legs. There's just all kinds of things you can do that's just a lot easier when you stand. But if you stand without a, and, and they're not wearing a gi, what are you doing? them? Well, you're giving them space to release the guard and then quickly stand. So you have to pressure pass in MMA, and that's hard to do, man. It's really, really hard to do. And so... I didn't see a lot of like pressure passing being the natural thing for Juliana Pena. There was times where she had, I mean, she had Jessica I, she could have stacked her and put her on her shoulders and driven the shoulder into her. And she didn't, there were times where she was trying to turn the corner by almost not giving her back exactly, but by giving a hip and driving into it. But if someone has like their knee inside and an arm out they're they're just going to hold you there. So I just don't know if pressure passing is her exact style of passing, if that makes sense. All right, so then we move, uh, and by the way, that was a 29-27 across the board because remember there was one point taken away for a, a knee on the head. So then you move, and we're running out of time here. Yair Rodriguez defeats Dan Hooker via unanimous decision, 30-27 twice, and then one thirty twenty six. I'm actually going to skip over this because I like what Yair, Yair Rodriguez can do, but a lot of that stuff, I mean, like the bicycle kick he had, um, 
you know, let me know when that when he does it against somebody really good, then I'll know he can bring it to him. But for right, uh, or, that's valuable. But for right now, it feels like early stage John Jones, who was you know trying spinning stuff and throwing people around. He just doesn't do any of that stuff anymore unless it's, you know, he's desperate against Gustafson or something. Um, Albert Tumanov defeated Alan Juban at 255 of round one with just a brilliant, brilliant job by Tumanov. So, like, there was one early flurry. Tumanov did one thing great. He had They were standing opposite stance. What does he do when you're opposite stance? You want your lead foot to the outside of their lead foot. Why? Because it creates the passing lane for your arm to just come straight down the, the, the middle and keeps your head out of the center line for their punches as well. So he was always, always doing this and backing Juban up. It was, it was great. Um, in addition to the footwork, you know, he was using, uh, Juban had like this pawing jab where he would reach and pull it back and he would like get ready to parry and he was like kind of waving it as a distraction. Tumanov didn't buy any of this at all. He used it against him a number of times, used it to, to parry inside shovel punch, uh, counters to lead rights. He'd fire over the top when, when he would recognize Juban wasn't throwing it with enough regularity. So he was just using it constantly against them. Backed him up the entire time. So there was one interesting part where Juban is actually pressing, and Tumanov misses on a lead uppercut. Lead uppercuts aren't your most powerful uppercut. Think about it. If you know you stand one way, the lead hand is your jab hand. You might stand that way if you want to uh, accentuate your wrestling, and some guys do. But more often than not, that's not your power hand. can be, but more often it's not. It's usually used to like raise the chin for a combo or to you know, stop someone from doing something. And this is the one that's supposed to shut the lights out. So he, so he, he missed on a lead uppercut. Um, he just didn't time it right. But he sees that Juban is still pressing, and, and he was, I think, off not only in distance but an angle. And then as Juban keeps pressing in a straight line, he switches and then fires the rear uppercut right back to back, and boom, it catches him. Very, very nicely done by uh, adjustment by uh, Tumanov. Um, and then finally, he finished with a right kick to the to the left hand. And then put a flurry behind it, but at least one or two occasions he uses the hand to measure or lift Juban. So, like, he fires the kick and it kind of lands right to the one side. Then he comes back and then throws uh, a punch. And Juban is still kind of rocked, but still kind of blocking. You'll notice that there's two occasions where he uses his non striking hand to either push Juban, measure Juban, or lift his body in a direction to create a lane for the punch. Like, even in the middle of a flurry, he's not just going berserk in there. He's just creating opportunities and spaces to throw the striking hand. And then once he's landing with, you know, basically being uncontested, then he kind of unloads a little bit. I just want to point out, like, Tumanov does so many things right. He gets the lead foot on the outside. Um, he he uses someone's pressure against them by making adjustments with the with a similar punch. Um, he... Um, he goes side to side on his strikes. He uses someone's, you know, distraction slash best shot against them. Like all kinds of things he does really, really well. Um, next, we go to Adriano Martins versus Islam Makachev, 146 of the first round. KO, the Brazilian won. This one's fairly straightforward. Interesting. It was the lead left that Makachev kept throwing. He threw it a number of times, and there were two occasions where it came back to bit him three, if you count the actual knockout shot itself. But this is what happened. He kept throwing the lead hand of the left first. Right, He was standing, I think, southpaw. He would throw the lead hand first. And eventually, by the third time, Martins read it and then you know took his lunch money. So what happened? Martins, uh, so, so Makachev throws a lead overhand left, and a lot of his offense came from the same side. But about a minute into the fight, Martins was able to sidestep it and then turn him on a, on a, uh, on a not exactly a fail takedown, but a halfway takedown. But he was able to, like, matador him out of the way. So that was the first time he saw it coming. Second time he saw it, sees it coming at 3.30 of the round. Here comes that no no setup. Not just jab overhand with the left. 
just left out of nowhere, right? This time, Martin steps back and parries it uh, to the right and gets out of the way. So he sees it coming, he parries it, and then ducks out to the right, right? All right. So then at 3.17, so 13 seconds later, what does Makachev do? No setup, throws the left. What does Martins do? Slides back and crushes him with the right. I mean, absolutely just, just steals on him because he kept throwing it, no setup, throwing it, no setup, throwing it, no setup. Once someone does that, they can just time you and react their body around all the different things that you do. Brilliant. Uh, okay, and then Nama Yunus versus Hill. So I thought Hill showed better, and by the way, this one went, uh, let's see. Uh, technical submission, standing rear naked choke at 247 of the first. Uh, I'm running out of time here. Uh, I thought Hill showed a, a lot of improvement in footwork, in head movement, uh, uh, jabbing and getting her head off the center line, circling out to avoid strikes, had a decent outside leg kick and inside space control in the clinch. Like She did a lot of things really, really well in this fight that I liked, but in the end, it just wasn't enough. Although I would say from the outside, Nami Yunus was the better pocket striker a little bit. Um, so the takedown was timed as Hill was stepping forward. Nami Yunus throws a right that just not even supposed to connect, but more like a clubbing right where the crook of your arm goes over the back of their neck. She blocks one side, trips with the same side that she's throwing on, and then takes him down. Nicely done, right? Um, okay, and from there, Hill eventually gets back to full guard and then goes to this bizarre full guard slash knee shield. Knee shield is when, when the bottom leg is hooking their leg up from a half guard and the other leg is like blocking their hip. Now, both legs are supposed to be blocking their hip, but oftentimes it doesn't work that way. It's called knee shield. For some reason, she gives up full guard to go to knee shield for reasons that are not clear to me. So... Nami Yunus does like basically like a modified style Paulo pass because she doesn't have to open the legs at all. She just walks around. There was a moment there where you can see Hill kind of looking for a Kimura, but she can't get it. So she turtles. When she turtles, Nami Yunus and Nami Yunus was trying to uh, you know was already moving in the direction of her backslash mount at, the, at that at that point because you know it's, it's transition. So so Hill rolls to her base. She's on her knees. Here's the funny part about it. If you if you watch in slow motion, she catches the hand coming over her first. Hill does. She knows it's coming. She catches it. But it just wasn't enough. So when she takes the first step up, what does Nami Yunus do? Pulls the hand out and then drives it back under super hard. Like, to Hill's credit, she knew it was coming. And she guessed the right side, too, you know? Uh, well, she had to because I think this hand was being controlled. Uh, Nami Yunus was coming over and grabbing her wrist. So this hand was being controlled. So she had this one up. She caught the hand. She caught it. She was there. But then Naminus just yanks it out and drives it right back in. I mean, it worked. It was brilliant. She gets the choke. And here's how she finished it, to your point. She called it a short choke. You can call it any number of different varieties. She had the gable grip, right? The gets the gable grip. Gable grip is like, here, let me show you the gable grip for folks who are a little bit confused about it. There's no fingers and thumbs in the gable grip. Take your hands like this, rotate them, and then grab, right? So hand goes over the thumb, hand goes over the blade. That's a gable grip, right? And you can do it either way. doesn't matter. That's a gable grip, right? She's gable gripping behind the... So this hand here, yeah, she's gable gripping this way. She's gable gripping. She's gable gripping, and, and it was fine. But that's not the optimal choke. So what does she do? She then slides to the bicep, and she does the perfect finish on a rear naked choke. First of all, it's the bicep grip, so you know it's hard. Look how centered her elbow is over the body of Angela, uh, Angela Hill. Not perfectly centered, but pretty damn close. But more importantly... When a rear naked choke, people think it's this, and that you drive their head down with this. You don't. You actually turn it in. You make sure you make a fist, and your fist faces you like this. And then you put your the side of your head against theirs, 
and everything. And some guys say squeeze like scissors. You can there's a few varieties there, but once they're here, she 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 puts the head down. Why? In MMA, no one's really going to do it, but in the street, they can headbutt you backwards. You just want to keep everything. I want to attach myself to you. I want everything to be right there. So she gets the, the hand facing her, squeezes her own bicep, head to the back of her head. I mean, everything is super tight there, super tight there, and uh, she closes the show. All right, so that is, uh, and then, of course, you know, let's see real quickly. Sage Northcutt defeated Francisco Trevino via 157 uh, first round. Sergio Pettis defeated Chris Carriasso via unanimous decision, 29-27, oh, two of those, then 29-28, one of those. And then Derek Lewis defeated Victor Pesta at 115 of round number three. Next UFC event, UFC fight night, Poirier versus Duffy. That'll be October 24th, so a bit of a quiet weekend next week, I think. I'm not sure if it's in Victor or what series of fighting, but whatever. All right, I have to go. Uh at SBN Luke Thomas on Twitter. Thank you so much for watching this. I'll post this on MMA Fighting. You guys are the best. And until next time, enjoy the fights.